The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. How do you do? We feel it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two greatest mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, well, we warned you. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive! You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am! I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. He did his face. Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spectacular characters and films in the Universal Studios' classic monster series. Today we're talking about the original horror show, James Whale's electrifying 1931 production of Frankenstein, starring the uncanny Boris Karloff. I'm the invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host and lab assistant, Monster Mike Manzi. How's it going, Mike? Hey, how's it going? <laughs> That's my Frankenstein impression. As is the titular monster, Universal's Frankenstein is a film stitched together from multiple sources. Most notably, of course, Mary Shelley's original 1818 novel, Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, as well as the 1927 play, Frankenstein, written by Peggy Webling and produced by Hamilton Dean, who listeners should remember from our Dracula episode. But like Dracula, Frankenstein and his creation have inspired countless projects over the years, from films to plays to TV sitcoms, and Jack Pierce's creature design is quite possibly the most famous in horror movie history. So, Mike, where did you have your first encounter with Frankenstein? Yeah, you know, I knew you'd be asking me this, so I really tried to rack my brain hard to figure out the first time that I was sort of conscious of Frankenstein, the monster Frankenstein. That's something I learned later in life, that the creature had no name, but I definitely referred to it as Frankenstein growing up as a little kid. I, it's hard to say. I think, you know, to be quite honest, I grew up at a very young age collecting comics, and I think the first sort of connection I made with Frankenstein was with the Incredible Hulk. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you got like Dr. Banner and he's, you know, a mad scientist and, you know, he turns into the creature. He doesn't create it, but the Hulk is this big green mass. Like he just roams the crunchy side hurting people. And uh, that kind of, I guess, you know, for me is sort of the first, when I look back, that's like the first connection I have with Frankenstein. I mean, he showed up on those uh, Abbott and Costello movies for sure. And his image was just 
you know, burned into the public consciousness by the time I came around. This movie was already, what, like 50 years old when I was a kid in the 80s or so. So maybe there was even like a universal renaissance because of the anniversary or something. And also, you know, Frankenstein is probably perceived now as one of the more benevolent monsters. Like, it's funny to say because he murders a child in this movie, but in a weird kind of way, like, I was never really scared of him. So it was always more attractive as a, as like an image and things like that. I was always very curious about it. Um, and I'm sure I had like color form and Scooby-Doo ran into him at some point and all that kind of thing along the way. Sure. I thought about this myself quite a bit. I think I mentioned in our introductory episode, I had two of the Universal Monster films on VHS. I had Frankenstein and I had The Mummy. So as a kid, at some point I had watched that and was pretty indoctrinated into this original Frankenstein pretty early. Before that, I can only imagine that my only experience with a Frankenstein monster was Frankenberry cereal. (laughs) Yes. Awesome. Or actually, if it wasn't Frankenberry, it could have also been the Monsters. I grew up with the Monsters. Oh, totally. Yeah, same here. Yeah, so some people grew up with the Adams Family. I grew up in a Monsters house. Herman Munster clearly has a Jack Pierce Frankenstein look, just like Lily has the bride look and Grandpa has a Dracula look. They are the universal monsters as a family unit. (laughs) 100%. Yeah, I think if not this original 1931 Frankenstein, then definitely I got some experience experience with, you know, Frankenberry cereal and the Munsters, as silly as that is. I think that's great. You know, the Munsters, you totally just like jogged my memory. I loved that show growing up. You know, that was a comedy. So it just never occurred to me that he was supposed to be scary, right? Because he's, he is sort of like Homer Simpson on that show. Yeah, totally. And you're right. Yeah, I definitely watched that before I saw this movie. I think I mentioned in our intro episode when we were just talking about our history before we reviewed Phantom of the Opera, some kid in fifth grade, I remember making a big fuss that Igor wasn't his assistant it was Fritz oh right 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 around that time was when I first saw this movie properly you know and then it had been years and years later and it's still been like a decade since I've seen this movie so it was awesome to rewatch it yeah I watched this one a handful of times every year or so usually around Halloween it comes on because I want to watch an old universal horror film this being my all-time favorite of this series this is the one that usually gets brought out the most sort of showed my hand a little bit I'm a huge Frankenstein fan where does Frankenstein sort of fall for you in terms of like the overall hierarchy of these characters he definitely is at the top like they're all so close you know what I mean like it's very hard to sort of put one in in front of the other but uh, there's just something about like Frankenstein that is different because I feel like this is something that's been brought up he seems to be the only one of these well kind of until we get to the creature of the black lagoon which is sort of questionable like if he's part human or not he's the only one of these universal monsters that's not a person right so the doctor Frankenstein Henry is like a monster and then we get the wolf man who is a man that turns into a monster and the invisible man becomes the man that's a right you know? right right so like there's something kind of special just because of that that, that this is the creature that was created out of nothing kind of in Like, even Dracula was human once. So I think he sort of stands above, in my mind, if not just because of that, even if he's not necessarily my favorite. I love him. Uh, This movie is definitely, like, an incredible movie. Like, visually and everything, it is just gorgeous. It's so insane. So I I definitely believe, like, yeah, he's he's at the top of the heap. He's like King of the Monsters, I guess, until Godzilla shows up. Yeah, I kind of said it before, but I, I would say that he's probably the most famous in terms of iconography. 
there are people who may not recognize some of the other characters in this canon, you know, but Frankenstein is so unique and so distinct. I mean, we put him on our logo for Pete's sake, you know? So yeah, I think he stands alone at the top as perhaps the most iconic of these characters. He definitely is high on my list. I think uh, as a kid, I really related to the monster. I think I always found him to be a sympathetic character. Did some reading in my research, Frankenstein monster has historically been very popular with kids. Even though, you know, this movie played very differently in 1931, it was very terrifying and very intense. Kids always seem to gravitate towards the creature because he's so childlike. He just wants to be loved and be accepted, right? But society turns him into a monster. So that always kind of spoke to me. But I think far and away, the movie is maybe the absolute best that Universal put out in this series. Just to compare it quickly to the movies we've seen so far, Phantom and Dracula felt so grounded in a sort mm -hmm. of realism. And this feels like a fairy tale. Like this feels like a Grimm's fairy tale or something. And it looks like one too. Like it looks like you're watching like a storybook or even like a play with the background, but it works so perfectly. Like the material and everything and the, and the style, it's such a perfect marriage. There's levels of expressionism and this is like peak. This is like madness on display. And, and it's great. It works so well for the material. Yeah, and it's kind of a miracle that, that it worked out that way, right? Because this production, just like the previous two, were not perfectly smooth productions. Frankenstein definitely had its ups and downs in terms of production. Where it started is very different from where it ended up. Actually, let's get into that, because I think that the story of the making of this film is just as interesting as the film itself. Universal's riding high on Dracula, and they knew they needed the next thing, right? Junior Lamley was the guy who really spearheaded the horror with Universal. And in his mind, there was really only one other book to go to, and it was going to be Frankenstein. Frankenstein was a hugely successful novel. It was published in 1818, written by Mary Shelley. And within a handful of years, there were at least five plays that were adapted from it. So even in its own time, the novel was hugely successful. Everybody wanted to adapt it. So Universal purchased the rights for the book, and they also purchased the rights for a specific play. It was a play that was published in 1927, written by Peggy Webling, produced for Hamilton Dean's production company. It was a play that she wrote for Hamilton Dean to produce and star in, because he was also an actor. So Universal purchased both of these for a total of $20,000, and that was going to be the basis for their film. And initially, they had hired a guy named Robert Flory to direct it. And of course, the star of this movie was going to be Bela Lugosi. In fact, there's a, a famous one sheet. I'm sure you've seen the one sheet of Frankenstein with Bela Lugosi's name attached to it. Yes. It's a great poster. And if you haven't seen it, I think you should definitely look it up because it's it's this cool little like curio of a film that almost was. Yeah, it reminds me of the Revenge of the Jedi poster. Yes, yes. the title before it came out. <laughs> and so Robert Flory is the guy who did a lot of the development early on. He's primarily the guy responsible for all of the German expressionist style of this film, because we talked about how Phantom and how Dracula have a very clear German expressionist influence, or at least they appear very European at the very least, right? Frankenstein is like wall-to-wall -wall German expressionist, right? It may as well be like a Fritz Lang movie or something. It, it really is. Like, they tapped into that 100%. And so in the early stages of this development, there were a lot of people attached to this script. Robert Flory contributed to the script. Another man, 
John Russell. Um, ultimately, the two who were credited for the screenplay were Francis Edward Farrago and Garrett Fort. So there were a lot of hands in this pot. And of course, John L. Balderston contributed some things. We'll also remember him from Dracula. He was sort of the Universal's guy. Like he, he took the play in this case and then cleaned it up before it got ready for the script for Universal. And it's funny when in the credits, like all these people seem to be credited and you see kind of like the different versions they're pulling from, right? It's like the screenplay adapted from the stage play adapted from the book. Like it's kind of funny, but it worked. Yeah, it's it's interesting how like, so we have what, five guys now, plus the scenario editor, Richard Scheer. And whatever Mary Shelley wrote from the novel, right? So we've got seven people all connected to the story that this movie ended up being, which is insane. No one bought the Thomas Edison version to crib from. <laughs> <laughs> we've got seven people at least involved in the story of this, and they're all kind of pulling from different things. For example, the original novel has no lab assistant. We know Fritz is, is the lab assistant in this. That character originated on the stage in a play, and he was brought into this film by John L. Balderston when he cleaned up Peggy Webling's play. He added Fritz to the film. And then we have, you know, little things like Victor becomes Henry, and Henry becomes Victor, and I'm not really sure why. In some versions of the script, Victor was uh, Elizabeth's old fiance, and now she's in like this kind of arranged marriage with Henry Frankenstein. The movie was sort of also like removed from any specific time period. The, the only technology in it that seems to exist is in Henry's lab. You know, there's no cars, there's nothing modern of convenience, and yet it's when I don't where like it's it might as well take place in Laveria like there's no telling and I feel like that's sort of another like organic evolution of the parts of the changes that have been you know put to this material and I think that's great too to give it this sort of like it can happen whenever sort of situation like it's part medieval it's part futuristic it's all of it I do feel like that could have been found in the whole development process, but I do believe at the end of the day that was an intentional decision because the director of this film, we'll get into what happened to Robert Flory, but, you know, James Whale, the, the director of this film, came from a theatrical background. You know, that was his thing, and he had only directed a few films prior to this. So I think that he had intended for this film to stand, like, or to exist outside of time and space that we, as we know it, you know, like, it all feels familiar. It's got elements that we understand, like, it clearly takes place kind of in a Bavarian area. It could be Germany, could be Austria. The name Frankenstein kind of means that he's got to be in that part of Europe, right? And then we've got corpses hanging like along the road, which is a very medieval thing. Yeah, gallows and stuff, right? Yeah. Exactly. And then his, his watchtower with his lab is all very gothic. And of course, the fashion is very 1930s. So yeah, I think I, I kind of like that idea. I'd never thought about it beforehand before I had to really watch it and examine it. It makes perfect sense. This film is very anachronistic in that way. And I kind of like that they did it that way. The other two films we've watched already are very grounded in reality. You can kind of pinpoint when and where they are. This one doesn't do any of that, doesn't obey any of those rules. And, and it's very subconscious. Like it took me to this viewing at my age to really put my finger on that and to listen to two audio commentaries sort of explaining it to me for it to sort of lock in my mind and be like, oh yeah, like it's something that was always sort of in the back of my mind. There's something off about this situation I could never put my finger on. And I feel like that's 
kind of it, you know, like that's what they're getting at. For sure. Let's get into what happened with Robert Flory and Bela Lugosi. Robert Flory filmed about 20 minutes of his vision of Frankenstein. He, it was mostly the lab sequence with the reanimation of Frankenstein monster. I suppose that also worked as a uh, screen test for Bela Lugosi playing the monster himself. And at the time, you know, Robert Flory, like I said, was really invoking a lot of what had already been done with, with German Expressionism. The films that we know for sure that influenced Frankenstein were Metropolis, The Kev of Dr. Caligari and the Gollum. Based on some photos that I saw, the Frankenstein monster look at the time was very much inspired by the Gollum. That's what the Edison version looks almost exactly like. So I've seen that version. That does things sort of wildly different in that like Frankenstein is a uh, like an alchemist, right? The creature comes up out of a cauldron, right? It takes a lot of liberties with this story. Yeah, I think it was more of like a camera test and a special effects reel at the time to see like, this is the possibilities. Edison wasn't really known as a director, you know? He made movies, but they're more like samples, I feel. Sure. Bela Lugosi's Frankenstein monster, in my humble opinion, didn't really get an honest shake, you know? Like, he was kind of set up to fail because he looked so ridiculous in that particular makeup. And the account that I had researched was that Carl Lamley Jr. took one look at him in the makeup and just laughed. That's not a good sign. Yeah, you never want that to happen. <laughs> no, and then he, he also didn't speak very highly of Robert Flory's footage either. I think the quote that I read was that it was not very good. Well, so the, what I heard was that Bella didn't even know he was testing for the creature. He thought he was playing Frankenstein, the Dr. Frankenstein, you know? And that would have been awesome. He would have been a great Dr. Frankenstein. You know, I'm already scared of him because he was Dracula. I feel like he could perpetrate atrocity. In hindsight, like, we know that he has gone on to play mad scientist-type characters characters. If they had gone that route, I don't know that I would have enjoyed that either. Bella is just made to play these big, you know, larger than life characters. And one of the things that I love about Colin Clive in this film is that he's one of the only like real grounded, realistic things in this film. You know, I, I, I buy him as this guy who wanted to achieve this goal, right? This thing he had set out to do. If it were Bella, I could see him just sort of twisting it a little bit and, and making it more broad and maybe making Henry Frank Frankenstein a little more nefarious. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point about Colin Clive, and I'm sure we'll talk more about him, but to be the most insane character of the movie, he does actually feel like the most realistic. He's like the best actor, I think. Well, he's like a completely compassionate type of man once, you know, when you get to the core of him. Like, you know, he's got a god complex, obviously, but he's not out to hurt anybody. He's actually trying, he thinks this is going to help everything going on. And yet, he kind of looks very ghoulish to me on his own, you know? And that's not the say he's not a good-looking person or that he's ugly is there's just something again you know he's got a very sort of sunken face he, he's got sort of like big features you know he almost like it almost looks like maybe they did something to enhance that to sort of uh, say is more of a parallel to when the creature arrives that like oh look like they both sort of look alike in a lot of ways like they parallel each other in that way yeah I hadn't thought about that until you just said it but you're right in that both Colin Clive and Boris Karloff like have that sort of like they think in frames and sort of skeletal faces. Karloff's was emphasized by the makeup, but yeah, there is a lot of similarity there, and I don't think that that was a mistake. I think if you had had Bela Lugosi playing Frankenstein, I don't know that you would have had that same quality. That could have been accidental, could have been intentional, I'm not sure, but with Bela, I don't think you would have gotten it. Yeah, he'll play the creature eventually, and I think things worked out just fine for this movie. <laughs> you know, they got enough holdovers from Dracula as it is that we're going to talk about, so we didn't, we didn't really need another one. 
one. Right. As for Bela Lugosi playing the monster or not playing the monster, as history tells us, there are different stories, of course, of what really happened. If Ed Wood is is to be believed, the movie <laughs> Ed Wood, then Bella decided he didn't want to play the, the monster because it wasn't sexy enough. It was all makeup and grunting, you know? <sighs> all grunting uh. oh, no, that's an, an academy award-winning performance like it's so good <laughs> but yeah i mean that's an exaggerated version of that story but yeah th- there is a version of this story where bella was riding high off, off of dracula and was on to the next thing and when he, he was presented with frankenstein he said no I'm, of course i'm not gonna do this there's like this whole rivalry set up like you know Karloff doesn't deserve to smell my shit and like all this stuff but yet they end up making so many movies together <laughs> you know they end up kind of becoming friends and like you know friendly rivals like I almost see them as like the Stallone and Schwarzenegger of their times at some point. I think that under normal circumstances this is a role that Bella could have gotten himself like he could have really sunk his teeth into I don't think he was that much of a prima donna I mean this is just my own conjecture here but Bella made it seem as though he was above that role in order to save face because it's better for him to tell that story than to admit that he was sort of laughed out of the studio because of that makeup. I think that's probably a little bit of both. History meets somewhere in the middle, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I, I think he would have been a great monster. So like, as you said, he does go on to play the monster, but of course the studio didn't really help him out there either. So I think in a lot of ways, Bela Lugosi caught a raw deal after Dracula. You know, he's a guy who should have been a huge movie star independent of Boris Karl. Karloff. He just never got that break that he needed. He was always playing kind of second fiddle to Karloff when they were paired up together. Really kind of sad because Bella was great. Also, I've come to find out that like Boris Karloff pretty much like embraced the idea that he was Frankenstein, whereas it seemed Bella, you know, and this again is his conjecture from my end, is that like he kind of wanted to distance himself a little bit from that to be like, I could do more, I could do other things and stuff. And like James Wales and Boris Karloff are going to do the old Dark House together in, a, in, in like a year or two right so like you could sort of see like a working relationship probably was developed under those circumstances i don't want to say like bella was the prima donna or anything like that but it just seems unusual that you know there's a guy who who for all i can understand is like saying i don't want to do stuff like dracula anymore and then boris karloff who's like yeah i'll do tons of stuff like frankenstein one was able to like embrace what was happening and the other was just kind of like didn't understand how or something i'm just remembering another angle to this whole story so when robert flory was I guess let go and James Whale was hired on to direct Frankenstein. There's another version of this story where James Whale dismissed Bela Lugosi himself because he didn't want the same guy playing both Dracula and his Frankenstein monster. James Whale wanted to distance himself from Dracula a little bit. So, you know, it may not have been up to Bela at all. You know, but I certainly understand his point of view and his frustration with Frankenstein. We may never know the full story. So now we've got James Whale directing Frankenstein, and he had seen Boris Karloff, I think, on the Universal lot, and just was sort of taken with his unique look. If he's anyone who's ever seen Boris Karloff, you know he's got kind of an interesting face already. And so he cast Boris Karloff as his monster. Now, Karloff had an interesting career. He uh, had done 80 films before Frankenstein and wasn't making much money as an actor, so in his free time, he was driving trucks. You know, can you believe, like, Boris Karloff, who became, like, the face of Universal Horror, had been working for that long, making 80 films, and and just working as a truck driver on the side. You know, it's insane that this one movie just 
blew up his whole career. That's awesome. Yeah, there's a fun story his daughter tells on the behind the scenes where he was like looking his finest and dressed to the nines in the commissary when James Whale spotted him and was like, you're my monster. You're the creature. And he's like, well, I don't know how to feel about that. Like, I, was, I thought I was kind of good looking. And now he sees like this monster in me. But, you know, he, again, like he took it with a you know a great assault like he was such a good sport about all of it yes by all accounts boris karloff was a very gentle generous man and uh, was loved by everybody so i totally believe that he would have had some sort of gracious response to that when i was a little kid like i knew him from other stuff you know like he famously is the narrator to the grinch who stole christmas cartoon and i i remember when i was sort of studying the uh, roger corman school of filmmaking like he pops up in francis ford coppola's like first movie there, there's some extra stock footage or something of him from another old movie with like Dick Miller. It's crazy. Like he worked until he passed away and he was in the hands of people who loved and respected him until he was out. Still making horror movies and doing it for people who grew up loving him. So, I mean, it's just so, such an amazing career. I don't think we really have an actor quite like him today, you know? I mean, it's hard to say, like, who's made that many, like, I think of Sam Jackson, right? Like, there's a guy who every generation is going to know about, like, he, he just transcends so much time in cinema that it's hard to sort of think of it without him. And that's how I think of Karloff must have come across. I can't remember movies without this guy. Because you know how like a lot of actors will, will turn to horror when they need to make a paycheck, you know? Like, they need some extra cash. He was always very grateful of his place within the, the horror film community, and he always knew, you know, it's it's where, I think it's where he felt appreciated and respected, and good for him, man. He just, he just kept going back to that well. And that's not to say he's always made good movies. He's made some real crap over the years. But he always, always seemed very appreciative of horror films for giving him a career, you know, and, and never resented that. Okay, so we've got Karloff in the role. Let's talk about his makeup, okay? Because I think when people think of Frankenstein, they think of this look. Now, there are a couple people attributed to the look of the Frankenstein monster. Of course, Jack Pierce was the, the head of the makeup department at the time, and he got the credit for the execution of this makeup effect. But according to different stories, now, again, this might be one of the situations where, you know, history meets in the middle. But I can certainly say that James Whale and Jack Pierce both contributed to this ultimate final product of what Karloff looked like in this makeup. Up. It's so minimalist. It feels like this sort of game of adding and subtracting. I take a little way from here, add a little bit there, and this, and then they all, by committee, somehow created a horse instead of a camel, like they set out to do. It's really something. Yeah, it's so much about this movie just kind of is a metaphor for the monster himself. This patchwork production. <laughs> Absolutely. Of course, the flat top head is attributed to James Whale. If we want to believe Gods and Monsters with Ian McKellen, he claims that that was his idea, you know, to have the, the head open up like a can so you can just drop a new brain in there. And then we've got little things like Karloff himself had like a dental appliance in his mouth that he was able to remove and then he sort of sucked in his cheek and then that was sort of emphasized by Jack Pierce. Like a lot of it just seems like, okay, um, practical kind of thing like Karloff like what can you do oh well I have a bridge I can take out let's see how that looks and oh great you look like more of like a skeleton and then it's like well let's see like how do you get the brain in this thing well you got to chop the top off right so it's just like clearly he needs a flat top got a couple stitches here and there he needs bolts in the neck because you got to hook up the electricity somewhere like it's really neat how it all just feels like enough like just what they needed but nothing more really right it's just scientific enough that my brain willing to accept it and say, yeah, of course, this is how you would reanimate dead tissue, right? You would sew a body together. 
Yeah, you can see the stitches. It makes so much sense. It's so visceral when you're like, oh my God, that's like, you can see where the hand is like sewn on. You know, nowadays that's gruesome. I couldn't imagine back then seeing like a huge gash in this dude's forehead being like, what the hell? I could see his brain? Like, what am I supposed to be seeing? And, and of course, other things that I didn't even think about, you know, because we think of the Frankenstein monster. He's very tall, right? Why is he very tall? Well, I found out that Jack Pierce was thinking about, you know, what happens to bodies when they die, right? And of course, blood sort of settles into the lowest parts of the body. So in his mind, of course, the monster would have big swollen feet. So that's why he's got these like big giant boots on to accommodate his big swollen dead feet. And even little things, there's like dark makeup on the fingernails. That's the reason that the Frankenstein monster has black fingertips because all the blood settling in the bottoms of his fingers. This was all kind of a group project, if you will. Everyone sort of contributed a little bit to the creation of this monster and the fact that it stands as perhaps one of the the most iconic most famous images if not the most is incredible and and they leave so much to the imagination also like if you recall you know maybe one day we'll get to kenneth brenna's mary shelley's frankenstein starring robert de niro as the creature and that's very off-putting because that is more sort of i guess medically accurate yet right, that's right. not what you need like that's that's not what's necessary like you need to leave some of that shit to the imagination and so like i definitely remember as a kid thinking of like how many different skin tones is this dude under that jacket like how mismatched are his body parts and things you know and and now watching it now i think i mentioned to you uh, in a text you know it doesn't necessarily come across in this version but it's there a little bit i'm like he's kind of like a cyborg nowadays you'd look at him and be like RoboCop, you know, like RoboCop is the modern Frankenstein in a lot of ways. But back then with the bolts in the neck and stuff, like it just sort of got my mind turning. Like they could have pushed this more in that direction and it would have worked just as well too. Now, I personally feel like this Frankenstein has more of an organic feel to it, that if anything, there's animal parts going on inside of him instead of like uh, artificial ones. Either way, I think it just stokes the imagination so much. Like, I don't necessarily agree with the robotic comparison in this film, but I do agree that the Frankenstein monster definitely becomes that over the course of the run of these films. He just starts to become this thing that whoever the villain of the movie is wants to use to achieve their goal, right? He's just there to assist in that task as opposed to being a character in his own right. Yeah, another reference that I wasn't aware of until recently is that he's basically a zombie he's like a somnambulist and for a lot of his movie career right and like you're saying in later ones it's just like go do this right and he'll do it and so he's kind of like order him he's like remote controlled or something like that and that is straight out of the cabinet of dr caligari anybody who's read the novel the, the frankenstein monster in the novel is not that sort of character at all he's very intelligent very well spoken he's the guy from van helsing with uh hugh jackman like he's spouting shakespeare he's very literate you know he ponders too much he just talks and talks yeah he is very much in the novel the monster is very much like the opposite side of the same coin as Victor Frankenstein. I think this movie is a little more interested in other themes. I think those themes exist in this film, but the whole sort of Faustian theme of overreaching past what man is should be doing, that, that's the prevalent theme of this film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they even take off the subtitle, The Modern Prometheus. Everything is sort of shrunken down a little, maybe a little too much in some degrees, but it's still great melodrama too, right? Like, it has to play to the audience of the time. 
time and you can't give them too much too soon so it can't all be out of control scary and gory so you can't cover every theme that way also like you just can't fit it all in right of course and this film as we'll discuss is a very very condensed version of the book and the plays you know like there's a lot of material to mine there i think they found some really creative ways to condense just like we did with dracula We've got our cast, Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein. Colin Clive had, of course, worked with James Whale previously on a, a World War I film called Journey's End. James Whale insisted on casting Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein in this production, which I thought was kind of a neat detail. I think James Whale had his players, right? He had the actors that he really liked and, and liked to stick with them as much as possible, as we learned from Boris Karloff as well. From what I could tell, James Whale seems to be like a master who knows what he's doing like i don't feel like many people questioned him but yet also he was extremely like collaborative right because he saw that they wanted to go in that expressionistic direction so like he will sample movies at the time like there is a shot in here directly from caligari towards the end when frankenstein is creeping into the bedroom like that painting the nightmare that is on display in here like he is picking things from culture and putting them in his movie and like disguising it in Frankenstein. So we've got Mae Clark as Frankenstein's fiance Elizabeth. Now, an interesting detail about her is that the only other person who was considered to play Elizabeth before Mae Clark was Betty Davis, which is so, so wild. I'm not terribly well versed in Betty Davis's career. By 1931, would she have been, you know, I'm not so sure either, because the other thing I heard about Mae Clark is that she was in James Cagney movie, right? Like she was in, I think, was it Public Enemy maybe? Or like she's the one who had the grapefruit squeezed yes. in her face. Yep. Yep. She would have been kind of a, a leading lady at the time. Okay, so I'm looking it up. 1931 was the very beginning of Betty Davis's career. So she wasn't Betty Davis yet. But still, you know, like this movie may have changed the trajectory of her career. It, it may have killed her career because from what I understand, Mae Clark's career didn't really go very far after this. Like nobody in this movie, except for Boris Karloff, really like blew up it's funny it could have been like one of the first instances of like how a lot of modern actors or at least like 20 years ago a lot of the actors who are famous today were like from horror movies got their start in horror movies you know like johnny depp in nightmare on elm street or, or kevin bacon in friday the 13th it would have been like Mae yep. west was in frankenstein <laughs> like holy shit uh, she did all right for herself she ended up playing in extremely scary characters in her later career you know like hush hush sweet charlotte and and things like that what's funny funny to me is that the reason she didn't get the part in Frankenstein is because Carl Lemley Jr. did not think she had enough sex appeal. Betty Davis' eyes became, like, synonymous for having above-average, beautiful-looking eyes. You know, it's, it's, like, insane. Like, what was Junior thinking? Isn't that wild? So we've got John Bowles as Victor, Boris Karloff, of course, as the monster. But how great is that credit at the beginning of the film when they show the list of the credits and it says the monster and there's just a question mark? That's a tradition that was held over from the theater when productions of Frankenstein were done on stage, the program was would just have a little question mark there uh, for the monster. Yeah, I was of... trying to think of like a modern uncredited role this important and there just isn't, right? Like this would just never happen. So we've got Edward Van Sloan as Dr. Waldman. 
big carry over here. Yes, very similar role. I mean, he's essentially playing this film's Van Helsing, although things go a little bit differently for him in this film. Yeah, so he, he's Dr. Waldman. And I was thinking, man, if they had the foresight of modern executives, like he would be the Nick Fury of the monster movies back then because Edward Van Sloan's going to show up in The Mummy as another doctor. And it's just like, well, if he just wasn't murdered by the creature in this movie, it would have worked. He seems really close to Van Helsing in the sense of like, he just wants to destroy this creature as soon as he finds out about it to save the, you know, like he's on the same wavelength for the most part. Sure. He's also, you know, the person with the most authority about these things, right? As Van Helsing, he knows more about vampires than anybody else in the room. In this film, he is Frankenstein's old professor. He was always very good, at least in these three films, playing the character who could really command that authority, right? We always trust him to know that he's well-informed and knows what he's talking about. He knows his shit. And they knew that we felt that because this is something I did not remember at all from any previous viewing, he comes out before the movie starts and gives us like a little warning speech. And that blew my mind. Like this is stuff I attributed to later schlock stuff of like the 60s when Criswell would come out in Ed Wood movies and, and like give a little explanation of like what you're about to see is going to boggle the mind and stuff. Like this is awesome. I can't believe they were pulling gimmicks like this so early back in the day where he's kind of like saying, if you can't handle this, there's like nurses in the lobby or like, you know, don't be afraid like it's only a movie I read somewhere that Universal in test screenings with Frankenstein people were very put off by it you know it's not really scary by contemporary standards I think I view Frankenstein in 2020 as just a really beautiful kind of drama you know because I find that the, the monster to be so sympathetic I don't really find it to be very scary if scary at all you know it's just it doesn't have that same effect anymore but in 1931 people were very put off by some of the things in this film and we'll get to some of the scenes that had been cut out and censored because of how upset people were getting. And so Universal anticipating some blowback from religious groups at the time, you know, I mean, the movie's about a guy who playing God, you know, and he, he wants to revive a dead body, which is you know, by definition, an abomination. The very concept alone is so warped and disturbing. Even by today's standards, I feel like a lot of stuff in this movie is very fucked up. And so, sure, you know, back then, definitely need a, a little warning sign. <laughs> right. So I think that was Universal's attempt to sort of get out in front of that before the film was released and just let people know. And of course, I forgot to mention this on our Dracula episode, but Universal did do something very similar also with Edward Van Sloan at the end of Dracula, which had since been cut out and lost. We'll never see that footage, probably. Yeah, I meant to mention this on our last episode, but I figured now is a good time to bring it up because, you know, it's pretty much the same kind of thing. Although it was cut out of Dracula because it sort of implied that vampires were real. It was less a warning and more of kind of like a fun little wink at the audience as a farewell. But again, religious groups kind of hated this encouragement the studio suggesting that these sort of fantastical things were real and so uh universal cut it off the end of the film and you know it's been lost so we, we may never see it i love that this film begins with edward van sloan not as waldman of course he's just kind of being himself but uh as i said he has this reputation of being an authority figure so having him come out and address the audience is just a 
brilliant move in my opinion yeah i loved it and the perfect actor to do that like you wouldn't want dwight fry to come out and give you the warning because he's playing fritz like he's a maniac (laughs) you want the guy who's like the level-headed genius doctor who like kicked frankenstein out of class because his ideas were insane and also you have to think about audiences at the time like to follow your idea you know a little further if it were dwight fry people had just seen him as this raving lunatic in dracula so maybe not the most trustworthy person to have out there (laughs) You know, telling people it's just a movie. But yeah, so let's keep going down the cast list. We've got Frederick Kerr as Baron Frankenstein, who's incredible. So that's Frankenstein's dad, right? Yeah, that was an addition to this particular film. In In the novel, Victor Frankenstein is not the son of a baron. He's just a scientist with high dreams, you know? I love Frederick Kerr as Baron Frankenstein in this, as, as we'll talk about, you know, that this film ebbs and flows. It has, you know, these high moments of intensity. And then almost immediately, as if they realize that, they bring us back down with these scenes, sometimes with Baron Frankenstein. And they're like sort of comedy of manners type scenes, you know, very British, very James Whale. Like that's definitely his contribution to this film, because as you and I probably know, James Whale had an incredible sense of humor and definitely knew how to use comedy to punctuate these intense films he was making. I also like how in this movie we're sort of uh, poking fun at the aristocrats whereas in Dracula the comic relief was like the lowly orderly guy who's like the everyman in this one it's more like look at this rich idiot exactly he has no idea what's going on but thinks he does like assumes all this control and command but has none like he's the ultimate buffoon he's the perfect type of character to have in here because he could be a threatening presence because he thinks he is but on top of everything else going on like the dire seriousness of the actual situation like he's a joke and and i love that oh totally Yeah, and of course it's intentional, you know, he plays it perfectly, especially the scene with the Burgermaster has zero respect for the Burgermaster, it's amazing. The Burgermaster, played by Lionel Belmore, get too far away from the Burgermaster. He only has a couple scenes, but again, like a very sort of grounded character where he's like just a guy doing his job and gets like no respect. He is the chief law enforcement officer of this town and immediately is undermined at every turn by uh, Baron Frankenstein the first time we ever meet him. (laughs) He's only like, oh, I'm just trying to get the entire town together for your son's wedding. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to corral like all the bakers, all the dancers, all the music like it's all for you and he's just like whatever man i have no time for you get out of here so of course we have dwight fry we mentioned dwight fry as fritz the assistant now dwight fry was cast specifically at the request of james whale as well james whale had really loved him as an actor again whale came from the theater i have to imagine he was familiar with dwight fry as a stage performer but of course after dracula how could you not want to work with him again stole the damn movie (laughs) they had to get rid of him quick in this one because he would have stolen this movie too so they had to hang his ass and get him out of the picture James Well worked with Dwight Fry a total of five times in his career. So, like, we'll get to Dwight Fry definitely some more before we're through with this podcast. We've got Lionel Belmore as the Burgermaster, Marilyn Harris as the little Maria, the little girl, and Michael Mark as Ludwig, Maria's father. So that's our principal cast. Very small cast, very tight cast of characters, very tight movie too, right? Like an hour, 15 minutes, like an hour, 10. Like I love these about these uh, old monster movies. Like I don't, I think we're going to get one movie that's over 90 minutes throughout this entire run of our show. It's awesome. It's one of the more <laughs> fun things about this series of movies. You know, I don't know about you, Mike, but uh, I'm in my thirties now. And uh, when I want to put something on and I'm kind of torn between two choices, I'm almost always going to go for the, the shorter 
longer movie. So many things are like two and a half, almost three hours long now. If I find something that's a cool 80 minutes, I'm putting that on immediately. Oh, absolutely. And I know we talk about maybe they condense things a little too much, but if you're not familiar with like the source material and you don't know any difference, like it is precise. Like it is great how like they get in and out of scenes. They convey the information that's absolutely necessary. There's really no dilly dallying. There's nothing here that isn't supposed to be here for any real meaning or anything. It's awesome to see. Well, of course, I I think that there are some leaps in logic that have to be made with this particular film as a result of all of that condensing. I'm not as familiar with the novel as, as some. I'm able to enjoy this movie kind of on its own terms. Literally just crammed a whole bunch of this research into my head for this show. I didn't know some of it, but I've always love the efficiency of this movie. The book is the book and it's trying to accomplish a different task, I think. The themes are, are different and that's cool. I'm not somebody who thinks that a, an adaptation has to be a good adaptation to be a good movie, right? I think if you can distill the essence of something down to something, down to this, this 110 minute film and it works as a film, then it's a good film. It doesn't have to be a good adaptation, right? And Frankenstein is so malleable as a story and the creature as a character and everything like that. You can stray from the source material and it will still work. And I feel like it's not that there's different themes and stuff. There's just more in the book. And maybe that there's more than necessary. Like I read the book a while ago, but yeah, there is sort of a whole different tone with the monster being more conscious. When you're trying to be more sort of economic, and certainly these were sort of low-budget films at the time, and no one even really wanted them made in the first place, you, you just have to kill your darlings, chop and slice. For this version, I think everything that's here works really well. For all of the, the condensing that was done, this easily could have been a very sort of low-budget, kind of cheap shocker. I know Robert Flory's vision for this film, the original director, you know, he wanted the monster to kind of be this raging monster without really a whole lot of nuance. And that's definitely one way I could see this movie going. And I think that's kind of how some of the sort of the middle group of these universal monster movies go in terms of their monsters. They just sort of become plot devices rather than characters. And I think that this film really does a great job of threading the needle of condensing the story down into the essential bits. And then also, giving the monster a, a legitimate nuanced personality and I think that has a lot to do with Karloff and his his direction from James Whale you know they found the life inside this monster I think what it comes down to is the character is there like Frankenstein is there the monster is there like by the end of this movie they they have arced right they, like they have changed they are different one way or the other you know and and, and this is a great moment sort of after Fritz is found dead where Henry's like I regret this a hundred percent and has like a mental breakdown and and later when the the creature actually learns the value of life it's kind of amazing <laughs> i could easily see this monster not working so well on the page again i think sort of what i was trying to say before is that so much of it is in karloff's performance that if you were to read the screenplay he might not read as sympathetic as he really is but karloff just had such a command over his face and his expressions even through that makeup he could still make us empathize with this character Whatever James Wales is doing to get this silent performance out of him in a sound film, right? Like, it's crazy that the creature grunts and groans once or twice, but for all intent and purpose, it's one of those throwback, I guess at the time it wouldn't be so much because we're just getting out of the silent era, but it is more of a silent performance with, you know, a lot of sort of bigger gestures and, and stuff like that. But he's never going for like a cheap scare. Like, there's True. there's a couple cuts that are jarring and shocking, but 
they're earned and sort of necessary. It's never just like, okay, now we're just going to cut to the monster to scare you. No, like that's not the purpose here. Right. Yeah. I think that if, if he had not been made to look so monstrous, the film could play entirely differently. I think the strength of this film as a horror film has to do with the makeup, first of all. And then, yeah, some of that editing, because I don't think Karloff's playing this as a monster. He's playing this kind of as a five-year-old, right? Like he's kind of got that five-year-old mentality. And so if you were to strip all of that makeup off of him and, and just kind of sort of examine the character from an objective point of view, he's really not that scary. It's just, this movie is just so visual. And what it does, the makeup, of course, we've touched on many times. Arthur Edison's cinematography is great. And just the stark contrast with the lights and the shadows, I mean, that makes makes Karloff look more terrifying as well. So yeah, it's incredible. There's this combination of things that actually makes this a pretty intense horror film for the 1930s. Yeah, and they really amped up and twisted the scenery and the backgrounds and all that kind of stuff as much as possible. And then, like on a subconscious level, that really starts to get to you. Like it really makes you feel uncomfortable and you don't know why. It's almost like subliminal kind of mm -hmm, stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's a thing where it's like you weren't seeing like the twisted cells and the gigantic cast shadows and any other types of movies at the time in America, I'm sure. You know, it was all these foreign movies, which, again, I had to remind myself, like, oh, yeah, this was an American movie. Like, it feels so Euro for the time. That was hard for me to sort of get a grip on. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe that this is an American film. Yeah. In hindsight, I'm just so glad that that's the direction they went in. Let's dive into the story itself. Of course, we touched on the intro from Edward Van Sloan, the sort of warning to the audience. And then we open the film proper in a cemetery. We had talked about the scene in Dracula with when the ship arrived to London and we only see the shadows of like the crew that had been murdered on the deck of the ship. And you had referenced um, EC Comics right and the, the sort of the way that they would show all of these grotesque scenes with a lot of shadow and silhouette and, and whatnot. This opening graveyard scene reminded me of that like, like you can't even believe it. Silhouettes of crosses and gravestones and there's a grim reaper statue. You know, like this is easy to a T. For an opening scene in a movie to take place at a nighttime funeral and then a grave robbing scene directly after that, like this is crazy. Like I, I was shocked. I, that's my word of the night. Like I just can't believe like what a reaction this movie's been getting out of me. And then there's the they're digging up the grave and he shovels some dirt right into the face of the Grim Reaper statue as if to like, you know, spit on death. So yeah, of course we've got this cemetery and Frankenstein and Fritz are in there, as soon as this thing is covered up, they're in there with their shovels, digging this corpse back up. And then we get to the next body. They, they cut down this body from like a gallow along a road, which of course, as I mentioned before, is a very medieval practice. I love it as an idea. Again, it's kind of funny how I never really thought about it until this, this time, that it was so out of time, right? Like this is, if this is supposed to be the 1930s, this would never have existed. So they get their second body. Of course, the brain is useless because the neck of that body is broken. So now they have to steal a brain or acquire a brain from somewhere else. Let me just mention real quick that uh, these two are thick as thieves. They are thieves. They're, they're, they're grave robbing thieves, but like they are like besties. Like where did he find Fritz? Like what? This guy Fritz is like a, a hunchback and deformed and all. Like did he offer up like a foot to use during the procedure? Like I know that there was a, a movie called Victor Frankenstein or something like that where, where like this relationship was explored. I think it was like five or six years ago, but like... Like, these two guys, they're trouble, man. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, yeah, no, I love their chemistry here. I think, you know, at the time, the depression, I imagine Frankenstein must have put out an ad for some help in the lab. <laughs> you know, somebody capable. And, and Fritz is like, you want me to help you steal bodies? Sure, I can do that. You know, just... yeah, he looked at his resume. He's like, I've stolen eight bodies by now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah who knows how these two got together, but they do seem to work really well in the lab. Now we get to meet Dr. Waldman, played by Edward Van Sloan, and he's um, teaching a class about, you know, brains. You know, he has an average, perfect, healthy brain. And then, of course, he's got the dysfunctional, criminal, abnormal brain. This is a fascinating class I want to take. He basically is like, this guy lived a life of purity. Like, you know, he never robbed, stole, or cheated. It did everything he was supposed to. Look at his perfect pink brain. And he's like, this guy was like a murderer and a thief. And then he's like, look how deformed his brain is and everything. Like, this is just crazy science of the day. I sit back and look at this and go like, movies teach you the worst things sometimes. Like, people left the theater going, there's a criminal brain and, there, and there's a regular brain and stuff. And like, it's so great for the purpose of this movie there's no scene like this in the novel or the any of the plays like this was added by john l balderston you know when he was working on his version of the script as a way to sort of sidestep all of the sort of complex issues between the creature being created and then you know killing a bunch of people it feels like when that guy wrote that book about comic books right like the corruption of the youth or something and it's like we need to cover our asses here <laughs> like we yeah. can't say that like the creature came from a nice thing like it all has to be sort of twisted politically so that we don't influence the children improperly or anything like that right so yeah this scene with the brains or this whole detail about the brains was an attempt to condense the story to the point where they could just explain the creature killing people and behaving the way he does without a whole lot of necessary explanation do you need much more than like having come back from the dead to go on sort of like a mindless rampage i love the scene I think it's a I think it's actually a very clever addition to this movie in particular but yeah it, it just seems like there's something more going on here where they they just wanted to say something about society maybe and about like the criminal and the do-gooder or something it does raise some interesting questions about, you know, nature versus nurture, right? I think that's sort of a theme of this film as a result of that. But I mean, at the same time, from the moment this creature is born, he is living in fear. He's got torches in his face. He's being wrestled to the ground. He's being injected with needles. So who's to say that a perfectly normal brain would have made a difference? Yeah, like he would have just woken up under the same circumstances anyway. And that could have been what drove him to his actions from a screenwriting perspective that's what that scene was put in there for that's very smart i've seen versions of frankenstein on stage you know which really get into the sort of the themes of the novel right with an intelligent monster and all that and you know those are really cool too but in this movie i'm so grateful for that scene because when i want to watch this movie i don't want time for all that other stuff right i'm not looking for philosophy i'm looking for a horror show right so uh, i think i think that's this movie could serve that purpose whereas the novel and, and those other sort of adaptations could serve those other purposes the juxtaposition between what's happening in the scene and how it's happening is brilliant like it's a very disturbing scene of a guy sneaking in to steal this brain and yet he's the clumsiest fuck in the world he's tripping over chairs he's dropping the other brain like the skeleton scaring the hell out of him like it's a riot oh i love the addition of him pulling down on the skeleton making it bounce total james whale just injecting a little bit of comedy into this otherwise really dark and horrifying sequence but yeah it's a pretty amazing scene it's pretty iconic especially now and it's been parodied all to hell 
Now we've got Fritz, who <laughs> did his job very poorly. He's damaged the healthy brain, and so he had to steal the corrupt brain instead. And so now, after that scene, which I have to imagine was a little bit intense for 1930s audiences, we cut to a scene between Elizabeth and her friend Victor, who clearly is in love with her. Oh yeah, this is the love triangle. We get the picture of Henry on like the piano, and so while Victor and Elizabeth are talking, they're like talking over the picture of Henry, so it's like this yeah. Absentee guy who's like in the middle of this all, but she doesn't seem to really be digging him. Victor is so in love with this woman, like it's obvious to me, you know, he's in love with his best friend's girl. It's like, I just didn't think of that being the drama back in the day, but I guess so. I mean, there's not much going on with it. Like, they sort of team up after this scene and go talk to the doctor together, and then the three of them go to talk to Henry. So, I guess it, it's cool that all of his friends come together and are caring for him and stuff, but I, I ultimately thought it was like yeah victor wants her but she doesn't really see him at all right previous versions of this story maybe in some of the play adaptations victor was engaged to elizabeth at one point so there was a romantic involvement that this could be sort of a holdover from that but it definitely reads today as though he's sort of kind of stuck in that friend zone this scene sort of serves as a cool down period after that intense scene with fritz stealing the brain and then they sort of discuss that henry's been secluded and he's working on these experiments and so concerned for henry they go to visit dr waldman to kind of get a better sense of what the hell he's doing up there all by himself and that's when we kind of learn that he's sort of been outgrowing the class that's one way to put it his aspirations have grown beyond what he can learn in Dr. Waldman's class, right? He sort of wants to go more in the direction of like mad science. Like Dr. Not Van Helsing was kind of like, you know, when he told me what he wanted to do, I just had to let him go. Like, you know, I just could not be part of He's basically like, your friend is nuts, right? Like, he's trying <laughs> to bring people back to life. I'm glad you came to me because we should all have, like, an intervention for this dude. Yeah, and that's exactly what happens. Even though he doesn't believe there's a whole lot he can really do, he does agree to go with Elizabeth and Victor to the watchtower up in the mountains where Frankenstein's lab is. So, of course, they all decide to go up on the night Frankenstein is about to hopefully succeed in his newest experiment. He's got this new body all stitched together. He's got the brain put in. All that's left to do is wait for the lightning to arrive. And of course, right on cue, Elizabeth, Waldman, and Victor all show up, disturbing his experiment. I love that sequence where they're banging on the door, right? The rain's coming down, they're banging on the door. Fritz goes to see who it is, and he like sort of hobbles down the staircase. It's like this sort of subtle moment of physical comedy, which I really enjoy. Dwight Fry, man, I don't get enough of him. There's that really natural moment where he like pulls his sock up. Pulls his sock up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is when we get the first good look at the lab tower. The lab, yep. This is not like human geometry. Whoever built this fucking thing is from Lovecraft dimension or something because you, from the outside, it just bends and twists at impossible angles. Who would build something? And then on the inside, it's totally warped beyond like recognition. Like it, it is supposed to reflect the internal mind frame of Dr. Frankenstein. And I think it does that perfectly. The person who was responsible for designing this lab was an, a set designer and an electrical special effects creator named Kenneth Strickfadden. I don't know how much experience he had with movies at the time, but he was kind of like an electrician. And he had like all of this junk in his possession and inspired by 
by the laboratory sequences in Metropolis, he took all this stuff that he had and essentially designed that laboratory. All of those devices and instruments, all of that really was him just kind of like playing around with a bunch of crap that he had laying around. Isn't that crazy? It's so jam-packed and like every inch of it is just stuffed and you got like the Tesla coils going off and this is a sound movie, but there's really no music, right? And the music comes from electricity. Like I wonder if David Lynch is getting a boner watching this because you got the lightning striking with the thunder <laughs> and then you have all of the buzzing and the whizzing and the whirling of all the devices and it's just like snapping and popping and humming it's creating this like this is Frankenstein this is what he hears like in his mind all the time it just gets to you like electricity does like it it, it gives you static shock sometimes it makes your hair sort of stand on edge you get a very uneasy feeling from his lab and it's the only time we're seeing technology in this entire movie like there isn't a light bulb to be found anywhere else in this freaking thing that's true it's one of those anachronistic things or another one of those details that sets this outside of time right is that there are no familiar modern inventions in this sequence right this is where they would all be but all of these things look like they came out of a spaceship like not only did he hoard all these body pieces but he took every piece of tech from the city too and was like i need this more than you yeah and so this lab for it was just sort of put together like i said by like an electrician based on stuff he had laying around this influenced every mad scientist lab for the rest of time isn't that incredible it's sort of tailored and altered to a more believable degree and that like metropolis was a sci-fi futuristic thing going on robot lady and everything this is much more believable right like frankenstein is like he's talking to us he seems very lucid like he knows what's going on so you're like that man put together this contraption he got that deep into his science that he sort of created an entire new level of scientist the mad scientist yeah i think you're, you're onto something i think the performances in this are what really ground it because i mean in this scene in particular it's i mean it's almost like this uh watchtower lab is set in a different universe than the town below right because the set design is all very different you know there's a lot of diagonal angles there's no straight walls here there's a lot of heavy contrast this one set more than anything else in this film i feel like is the best example of german expressionism but unlike german expressionism you've got these performances that do feel real. So when you watch a movie like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or you watch Metropolis, now these are silent films. They don't have the luxury of having sound. We can't hear these actors performing these monologues and, and whatnot, but they perform in a very over-the-top way, you know, in a very theatrical, very stagey way. Here, we get moments of that. I mean, when Frankenstein's experiment works and he, you know, it's alive, it's alive. And, you know, like that's very over-the-top. But I mean, for the most part, we get these performances that feel very grounded in reality, even when the set looks like a set. A couple interesting points there. The contrast between his lab and the rest of this country, you know, when we cut back even to his palatial estate with his father, like there's very floral and ornate patterns everywhere and it feels very earthy. And very busy and very real too. Yeah, and then like the town is full of life and jovial and like a lot more sort of curved edges everywhere, I would say, as opposed to like mm -hmm. the jaggedness and all that kind of stuff. That works really well. And then also the contrast, like you're saying, like between the acting and the sets, like typically in a very highly expressionistic film, and I would even imagine before this, a couple of the sound films that tried to do this, like, yeah, the acting would also match that. Like the acting would be very over the top or something. And here they're not, like he's James Whale is sort of saying like, okay, 
just act like you're in a melodrama, but we're going to stage it like we're in a horror film. He knew how to give and take and what to balance when. I point out this particular scene just because of how much that set is so absurd. It's not a realistic laboratory. Like everything about it is very cartoonish by today's standards, but I don't lose track of the fact that these performances seem very real. And now Fritz being sort of the hunchback assistant is a little more colorful than the, than the rest. But you know, again, for the most part, these performances feel real. It's interesting about Fritz, about how he's sort of the precursor to be like, get used to Fritz because like, it's going to get crazier than Fritz. He might be weird at looking and shit, but like we got the monster coming. So like, it almost seems like they're sort of preparing you a little bit for that or something. Yeah, maybe. The other thing I think was uh, really interesting about Fritz is that like everyone just sort of accepts him. Everyone else doesn't seem anything wrong with this guy being around. It's just like, oh yeah, that's Fritz. Like that's his helper guy, whatever. Like we're cool with him. Yeah, no one thinks twice about Fritz. But okay, so Elizabeth and Victor and Dr. Waldman are all there, of course, interrupting the experiment. But in this moment of almost defiant pride, Frankenstein's like, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll show you. He decides to go ahead with his experiment. And of course, he raises the table up to the top of the tower during the thunderstorm. The lightning does its thing. And as he brings that table back down, the hand in the, like maybe the most famous sequence in this whole film, the hand starts to move and it is alive. It's so good that he has an audience for this. Yes. Like proof, like it's happening. I've got corroborators over there. What a great touch. And I think that gives him a little more license to be as fanatical as he is because he's literally talking to other people who disbelieved him, right? And he's showboating too. Who wouldn't sort of rub it in a little bit? No one ever believed me and I was right. And now I'm going to gloat in your face. Now, one of the things I find interesting about this particular scene, I mentioned that a couple of the scenes in this movie were censored or cut out altogether because of some controversial material in them. One of them is in this sequence. After shouting, it's alive, I think like seven times, Frankenstein says, uh, on the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God. That was a line that was cut out because of the way it offended certain religious groups. You know, the suggestion that someone could know what it was like to be God just rub people the wrong way. And so that line was cut out and wasn't put back until I think the 1990s. It was a long time because I think it was around the re-release after the Hayes Code that all the edits were made and then it took a while to find a print that was still intact after they all got chopped to bits. But I mean, look, even today, well, we have the MPAA, which really blows, but thankfully there isn't like a religious overlord looking at the movies that these days like this is some crazy shit like that's what they would do back in the day they just fucking every little thing that didn't relate to like god or the bible or this was like blasphemous you know and, and it had to go it's just kind of like a darkness like a dark stain on like the art society like even to today frankenstein is a pre-code film however it was also produced by a major studio who wanted this to be seen by the largest possible audience. So while they could have gone ahead with that scene and the other scenes that were cut out, it would have severely impacted their return on that investment. So just because there wasn't an organization in place to censor that material doesn't mean that stuff like that didn't get cut out. I think that's important to note. Yeah, that could come down from like the studio head who had a certain
certain way of belief as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because it came from Universal, I have to believe that these decisions were made by Universal, not because of somebody else. You know, they wanted to make as much money as they could with this film. So I have to believe they were just looking out for their own interests. Of course, in a few years when the Hayes Code went into effect, that's when you start getting into the actual organizations and, you know, eventually the development of the MPAA, which would have an authority to say this can be in a movie, this can't be in a movie, or if you're going to put this in a movie, it's got to be rated whatever. That wasn't a thing yet. Right. It won't be for a while, but the most famous scene of the movie, to my understanding, will be cut at some point and lost for a long period of time. The line about knowing what it feels like to be God, I, I looked up my notes, that was put back into the film with the first DVD release. So that line stayed out of the movie for a long time. The VHS copy that I had as a kid must not have had that line in there. I don't remember, and I don't even know if I still have that VHS copy. But if my notes are accurate, then yeah, it wasn't in the version I watch as a kid and to think that that scene was kept out of the movie from 1931 until its first dvd release that's a crazy long time censorship is just never good (laughs) that's my final word i guess on that (laughs) (laughs) okay so with the experiment a success we have a scene with Elizabeth and Baron Frankenstein and Victor as well. They're all kind of discussing some more of what Frankenstein has been up to up in the tower. They're discussing his experiment. I mean, this is more of James Whale bringing us back down after a pretty intense scene. Yeah, we get the Burgermeister shows up, that poor prick. (laughs) (laughs) We understand that Baron Frankenstein is preparing for his son's wedding, which is coming up and the whole town is going to be uh, involved in that. I love characters that I hate because it means they work so well right like I just yes. that's such a compliment to James Wales for him to be able to put a guy like this on screen and me to feel like man I'm glad this guy wasn't my dad <laughs> <laughs> but he just seems to be having so much fun in this scene I mean I don't know really much about this actor at all outside of this film but he seems to have a real knack for comedy and I just love the way he hams it up in this scene and it's such a great contrast to the scene before it I think James Whale was really smart to put a scene like this right after the reanimation of, of the monster it's almost like tit for tat scene to scene like that not exactly but like almost where it's like after we've gotten two or three kind of intense moments like we're gonna deflate again for a minute Exactly. After that scene, we get a scene of Dr. Frankenstein speaking with Dr. Waldman. And this is maybe the most sane we ever get to see Frankenstein. Like, this is maybe the most sober we see him. I learned that this scene was added after the shooting script was completed. This was something, supposedly, that James Whale had insisted on doing kind of on the spot with the intention of making Henry seem more sympathetic more sane. This particular Frankenstein is not a monster, though there are other adaptations, other versions. Certainly the hammer horror of Dr. Frankenstein is insane and evil. And But James Whale wanted the audience to be able to sympathize with this character. So he put in this scene where he's sort of explaining his whole thought process, what, you know, his goals were. He even asked Baldwin at one point, like, haven't you ever, you know, wanted to reach into the unknown and, and, and do something that had never been done before? You know, like that was his whole motive Motivation. He had nothing evil in his intentions, right? So I think it's a really great scene between Colin Clive and Edward Van Sloan. Yeah, I'm really glad it's here because it shows that Frankenstein isn't a 
psychopath. He's under control, like he's calm, he's cool, like he seems to be so aware of what's going on in this moment. You can't say that he um, like has lost it. You know what I'm saying? Like he's, if anything, he seems very gratified that he was able to prove himself right. He's not like I'm gonna go any further, right? He's like I've done what I'm gonna do, and now let's let's take it from there, and then we let's run some experiments on this thing. Let's see where it goes. And if I'm not mistaken, the other doctor's like, we have to kill this thing immediately. What you have done is an abomination. And and Henry's just like, relax, man. Like this is science. Like we're on the cutting edge. Let's just enjoy the moment. I like that because it just shows that he's not out of control. Like you think he is because in the previous scene he's stark raving mad, but like that was. Just just like a lapse even throughout the rest of the movie i mean he will sort of have like a panic attack at one point but other than that like he, he never really gets up the fervor or the mania ever again Right. Like he learns in that scene that the brain that he put into that creature was the abnormal criminal brain. Doesn't he say to that effect, well, that doesn't really matter. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. yeah. So like, I love that, how it's almost like that was such a big deal. And yet he's like, when he finds out, he's like, hmm, he kind of like bites his finger for a second. And he's like, that shouldn't really be too big a deal. I think we could work around that. But we know it's a big deal. So and then, of course, that scene is a great sort of precursor to the reveal of the monster finally. We hear him sort of stomping into the next room and the, the door swings open and he, he walks in backwards in this in the shadow. And then as he turns, we get that incredible shot of his face. There's like jump cuts as we zoom closer and closer in on his face. Yeah, I think this is the only time I like jump cuts. You get them from time to time in sort of like more artistic films, I guess, or, or otherwise they're, they're seen as like mistakes in modern movies and things. But this was amazing like what a technique to just be like closer no closer no closer just like you don't have time to sort of process what you're seeing and then you're right in front of the thing in these early films like in silent films jump cuts were a lot more common too so it's a little bit jarring today for sure but you gotta remember at the time jump cuts happened all the time you know and, and especially in the scene when they cut out that you know i know what it feels like to be god line the only way to get that out of the movie was a jump cut you know so that they just sort of cut that piece out and then just sliced it back together. So yeah, I don't think that a jump cut was necessarily as sloppy as it seems today. Yes, but it's nice to see it. This is intentional. You know what I'm saying? Yes, like This isn't yes, because yes. we're missing some frames because of the damaged reel or anything like that. Like he probably, James Wales, that is, maybe his process was, there are a lot of jump cuts just naturally in films because the technology is just shitty still, right? Like, so like maybe he kind of subconsciously is like, did that intentionally to make it feel like, you know, kind of like nowadays with Grindhouse, how you add in uh, all the damage and stuff. Maybe he was like, if I do this in jump cuts, like it'll give more of a visceral effect. Because when that happens, when you're watching a normal movie, you sort of get like a reaction out of it. And even though it's unintentional then, I'm going to make it intentional. The effect I get from this particular scene is I'm, I'm being sort of thrust forward towards a monster that is terrifying against my will. That's, I think, what they were going for with those jump cuts. What I got from it is like, you just can't get away from this thing. I definitely felt like I was being pushed closer to him against my will, which, you know, either way, it definitely worked because audiences were terrified of this thing. I could just hear the screams in the audience in the 30s. As he's turning around, they probably started and then they just got like the entire theater was probably just like losing their mind. Oh, for sure. But then we get some like like a really gentle sequence for a little bit. You know, they they have him, you know, sitting down. And at one point, Frankenstein opens up 
that sort of shade on the ceiling to, to let the sunlight in. And the monster reaches up in a very sort of childlike way. And then, of course, Fritz shows up with a torch and just fucks the whole thing up. You know, and then from that point on, the monster is just terrified of everything. They have to wrestle him to the ground and knock him out with, uh, with a tranquilizer. And of course, he wakes up after that chained in a dungeon. And he hates Fritz specifically because, like, he is the firebringer, you know? Like, he remembers him most because that was, like, his first experience with fear and pain. Henry and the doc, they're doing these tests. They're just, like, taking him for a test drive. They're like, sit up, sit down, stand on one leg. Like, it's going really slow. And then in comes Fritz with the fire. And, like, come on, like, is there anything more dangerous right now for any of them than fire like what that represents and i mean it's interesting that this is also the modern prometheus who who stole the fire from the gods to give to the humans and stuff and here fire is the not the one weakness but maybe like the main kryptonite of the modern prometheus so there's like a nice irony to that too yeah and, and i read somewhere that in an early version of the screenplay frankenstein was written as a much more cruel character he was going to sort of embody all of these sorts of things. I guess when Fritz was originally brought into the script, all of those antagonistic qualities were taken from Frankenstein and given to Fritz, which I thought was a great move. I could see in a bigger movie if we had, you know, like two to three hours to tell this story, having Frankenstein be a more nuanced character who has moments of, of intense aggression, but then also moments where we can sympathize, you know, like there's definitely something to that idea. But since we only have an hour and 10 minutes you know i think it was brilliant to split that part of him into a completely separate character because like fritz is not necessary he's there you know as an assistant he he's necessary for this particular sequence where he kind of starts this creature's life with a lot of antagonism and aggression right you know like that sets the tone for the rest of his existence i love that elements of frankenstein were given to fritz because it you know it makes fritz a more interesting character because yeah he's can be funny and he's helpful around the lab but then like we also learn as soon as this thing is this monster is created we kind of see a darker side to him you know fritz is kind of a dickhead oh well he's number he's number two now like frankenstein has a new freak to play with like fritz is being <laughs> sidelined like that's kind of one way i put it or at least there's some kind of weird jealousy going on between the new dog and the old dog and i'm glad we don't get henry whipping the creature i like it more that it's fritz going wild on him right um, and those two things sort of taking care of themselves like that the creature kills Fritz instead of whatever else they had in mind. Like, what would happen if Dr. Frankenstein was whipping this creature? I mean, the only logical step was he'd die way too early in the movie. That's how I see it. Not necessarily. So there were a bunch of different endings, but because Frankenstein was supposed to live and have a happy ending, they decided not to have him be sort of a monster to his creation. Because there were there other endings where they would have both died. There was another ending, I think, somewhere where the monster like just flung himself off of a cliff and committed suicide. But I think that because Universal wanted a sort of happy ending, at least for Henry Frankenstein, they had to make him completely sympathetic. If Frankenstein was a, a malicious piece of shit to his creation, which, again, there are versions of that story, then they both have to die. Frankenstein can't be an asshole and live. Right, like this version can't even kill his own creation, you know? Like once he right. sees that the monster killed Fritz, he's like, 
yeah, like I have now I regret this. Like this was a bad call. Like it's killed my friend. What do I do? Like he's a coward. Like he doesn't even have the balls to kill it himself, right? He asks not Van Helsing to do it. Uh, sorry, I'm just going to keep calling him not Van Helsing. <laughs> <laughs> just ha- Dr. Waldman. I don't want to see him standing over the creature while it's sleeping with a giant mallet, right? Waiting to rain down blows upon it or anything. Like it's so much more human that uh, he would feel this way, that he would be sort of this roller coaster of emotions. I love the complexity of, of Frankenstein and, and for him to be just straight out evil or a bad guy, like that just cheapens it so much. Like the idea of him is he is a monster because he's a person. Like there's not much more to it than that. This particular version of Henry Frankenstein or Victor Frankenstein, the, you know, the, the protagonist of this story. I like how sympathetic he is here. And I like that he's not the strongest character. Like I said, there's been other versions where he's been more dominant in the story. I like this version because it, it's stuff like this that makes this particular adaptation sort of transcend horror for me. It makes it a more complicated or more nuanced drama, you know, as opposed to just straight up horror show. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've much more picked up on that this screening because I think previously I was just looking at it as a horror film. Granted, this is like a monster podcast and everything, but I was actually, I was trying to see if there was anything more to it. And like, I might even say, sure, this is a monster movie. This is more of like a sci-fi film than like a horror film because of all of that drama stuff like that just inherently feels like the kind of thing you get in sci-fi especially like hard sci-fi kind of stuff when you're dealing with i don't know like creating a person out of nothing kind of thing just like the mental sort of tangents you can go on with those kinds of things as opposed to horror which is generally and not always but mostly until recently with like elevated horror and stuff which this feels closer to it's it's not that deep and there's nothing wrong with that and some of it is deep but for the most part it's very sort of surface and and i feel like this is much deeper than i used to give it credit for for sure and i think because of the way they've written these characters this might be the only uh or one of the few films in the universal monsters series where there's not really a true villain there's a monster by definition because at first you for sure think that like henry's a villain and then it turns out that he's kind of not and then you first you think the monster's a villain but it's also kind of not you know the baron is probably the meanest guy in this whole movie by the end of the film you you have a confrontation between the frankenstein and his monster but i mean if i'm if i'm being honest for when I watch this, I don't have a side that I'm on, right? Like, these are two characters that I have sympathized with over the course of this film, and I feel deeply for both of them. But they both have been victimized on some level. The monster has been treated the way he's been treated because of the way he looks, and has, just by learning how to be a person, has committed some pretty horrible acts. But, you know, like, at the end of the day, we we understand that he's not consciously making these choices, and Frankenstein is only just now starting to grapple with the consequences of his own own actions. So really, I don't see a villain in this movie, even though there is a monster, you know what I mean? And I think that's what's so good about this. Yeah, I see them as two sides to the same coin. Like by the end, when we're in the windmill, like he's looking into a mirror and it just comes down to excising that side of yourself. It's more about like letting that part of you die. Like it's a symbolic thing for me by the end of all of this. But I'm rooting for Frankenstein and the creature because by the end of it, they both sort of learn what it means to be human. And what that means is 
to sort of understand that you are capable of horrible atrocities and that you will then take responsibility for those. Like, that's how it kind of comes through in the wash for me, is that both of these characters have that realization. I'm not a monster. I'm a, nor- I'm a person. And people are inherently sort of like this. You know, I'm like this because I'm human. And by the end, the creature is just as much a human as the rest of us. You know, like we're chasing him with a pitchfork like it could be you or me. We kind of sort of covered some of what happens next here. Fritz antagonizes the creature to the point where the monster kills him. And I gotta be honest, when I was a kid, we don't see Fritz die. We just hear his scream through the halls, right? That scream, that performance from from Dwight Fry chilled me to my bones when I was a kid. I never found this movie to be all that scary, even as a kid, but that scream always got to me. And to this day, like I still like kind of feel a little bit of that as an adult. It's interesting how, you know, in Dracula, we got like all the accents and all the the colorful language and all that kind of stuff in that to sort of replace all the music that isn't there. And here it's sort of the same thing, but it's all like screaming and yelling and like blood curdling screams and, and stuff like that. Like it's the, it's sort of like the chorus of, of the macabre or something. We get the music in the town square for a minute, but that's all like diegetic. Like that's in the scene. Um, that's not like on the soundtrack or anything like that. Like if you were just to listen to the soundtrack of this, it's just like electrical sounds and screaming. And like, that's the music of this movie now with fritz dead and frankenstein kind of coming to the realization that his experiment has been a huge mistake he and Waldman conspire to sedate the monster and keep it locked away as henry collapses from his exhaustion he decides to head back home with elizabeth but before he goes Waldman assures him that he will uh, destroy the monster that's so great how henry passes out i don't know at all i saw it as like a panic attack or, or an anxiety attack oh, for or sure. something like that you know and then everyone's like oh let's get him back home let's get him back home and so it's so cool that like from now on he thinks the like he's in the clear like he doesn't know that in the next scene well the doctor's sort of like examining the creature the creature's gonna kill the doctor and escape into like the countryside and stuff like i love the idea you know just in movies in general where like the audience knows more than one of the main characters you know there's just mm-hmm, so much mm-hmm. tension at that point where i'm like he's out there somewhere like you can shut the door and close your eyes but he's still coming for you yeah, and, and I love that scene, the sequence with Waldman and the creature, because audiences knew this actor as Van Helsing, vampire killer. And here he is halfway through this movie getting killed by the creature. So now, like, all bets are off. Whatever safety we may have felt as an audience having Edward Van Sloan in this movie, it's gone. Van Helsing is now dead and the monster's on the loose. I don't know if that was done intentionally, casting Edward Van Sloan in this role for that reason, but I love that that's how it worked out. Because that was the first thing I saw, like, or thought of when, when that when I watched that scene, I thought, oh shit. I love that. Like, I didn't, I didn't consider that, but like, that makes perfect sense. Even I was calling him Van Helsing watching the movie, and I was like, yeah, he's gonna fuck shit up, you know? Like, he, he's a monster hunter. But like, he can't kill no Frankenstein monster, that's for sure. <laughs> like, I, I'm sure he could take on a werewolf or a mummy at one day, but like, this is out of his league. I wish we could see his face, and I wish it was Van Helsing, because he would have this look in his eye like, 
I've overstepped my bounds. <laughs> like Right, right. <laughs> so once the monster kills Waldman and escapes into the countryside, Henry's at home preparing for his wedding. As the wedding day is, arrives, we meet a young farmer's daughter, Maria, who is just playing outside. Her dad goes off to uh, get some work done and the monster appears. And what we think is going to be a horrifying moment for this little girl is actually quite the opposite. She is not afraid of him at all and invites him to come play with her by the the lake there. It's such a beautiful scene and him playing with this girl and they're throwing the flowers into the lake. So this scene was one of the scenes that was censored upon release. I love this moment with the monster, you know, finally meeting somebody who wasn't afraid of him. And of course he ruins it by uh, throwing the girl into the lake thinking she'll float like the flowers. Karloff himself thought this scene was a little too extreme. He didn't care for it. He wanted to like have the monster place her in the water and have her drown. He thought chucking her into the lake was too aggressive. The crew on the film thought that was a little too heavy. And James Whale himself disagreed with everybody and said, quote, it's all part of the ritual whatever that means when the movie came out audiences and the studio also disagreed with james whale that scene was cut and like the part that was cut is so the scene plays out and as the monster goes to reach for maria the film cuts and it goes back to i think frankenstein's home as they're getting ready for the for the wedding. So we don't get to see what happens to Maria. You know, what actually what happens is he chucks her into the water and she drowns. But I think cutting that scene out, now you may disagree, you may agree, I think cutting out the scene leaves far too much to the imagination and is almost worse than having that scene play out. This is probably one of the greatest scenes in film history. Uh, like, yes. especially within the context of this story, it is like masterful. I understand where audiences were coming from, but this is what makes James Wales like a genius. This is way too extreme. Like, this is very cruel. This is super over the top. Like, even for today, there's sort of like, not a golden rule, but you don't see kids get killed on screen a lot, you know? Like, it just doesn't happen. And like, Michael Myers looks past the trick-or-treaters, right? To Right. The right. teenager babysitters, right? I don't know how the hell they got away with this in the first place, but I think what he means by it's part of the ritual is just that, is that you have to create a reaction. You have to sort of push the limits and ideas of where people are comfortable with. And like, if we're making a horror movie, this is a step in the right direction. Like, this is a character development step. Without this, Frankenstein does never, he'll never learn. He'll never learn, you know? Like, right, right. And he'll especially never understand the value of human life and this is just like played out so beautifully you know something bad is gonna happen and it plays it the exact opposite up until the very moment and then it's just long enough where like you're like did he really just drown that kid and then you see the look on his face he knows exactly what he did the minute he did it it's like this double sort of shock of like oh my god i'm horrified and then like oh my god like i can't believe how much i i sort of sympathize for the for the creature because he knows what he did like he understands understands that was a the bad thing to do. It is hard to comprehend sometimes while I'm watching it, like that they actually pulled this off and got away with it. But it is like brilliant. The tact and the way that this sequence has been constructed is just is just amazing. I agree with you 100% on this scene. I think this is maybe one of the best scenes in the whole movie. Aside from the experiment scene with the monster coming to life, aside from that, this is maybe the other best scene in the film. Nature is so against this creature, like fire burns him, the water has cursed him him right <laughs> like he just does not fit in 
to nature. Like he is an unnat. Like I think that's what hammered it home most for me is like he is an abomination. You know what I'm saying? Like he he's not supposed to be here. He's like a he's like a glitch in the matrix or something. <laughs> like with him on our planet, like only these bad things can happen. Right. I think just the way the Karloff plays that, so it's so wonderful. You know, the, the moment he realizes what he's done and he's just like, it's like you see that that expression on, on kids' faces. The second they do something, they realize, oh shit, I made a huge mistake. Dude, that look on his face is probably like more the most haunting expression he gives throughout the entire movie. And it's, it's one that he's afraid. It's his fear. Yeah, and I think Karloff has a lot to do with the fact that even though the, the creature has done something that is unforgivable we still can sympathize with him there's so many moments in this movie that i think if, if handled in a different way by a different actor could have been played like this monster could have just been a brute been emotionless but i think that again this is another example of karloff really just knocking it out of the park we've got henry and elizabeth preparing for their wedding day and Victor rushes in with the news that Dr. Waldman has been found strangled and that the monster is nowhere to be found. So he is on the loose out in the countryside. And so that sort of sends up the whole wedding, right? Now we've got this monster we have to deal with before we can get married. And there's a great scene here where they hear the monster, right? They can hear it kind of like in the home. The, the monster found Frankenstein's house, I have no idea. Like this is one of those sort of <laughs> logical leaps we have to make because of all the, the condensing going on. But either way, the monster is nearby. And so Frankenstein and his groomsmen all take to different parts of the house to try and find the monster. And they secure Elizabeth in her bedroom. And while she is in that room alone, the monster sneaks in through a window and assaults her. Now, there are different versions of this scene that play out in different adaptations. In this particular version, it doesn't seem that the monster does really a whole lot more than kind of frighten her. But there are versions of the story where he kills Elizabeth. There is a, a stage version that I've seen where the monster rapes Elizabeth. But that's, I mean, that's a version where the monster is more intelligent and more vengeful toward his maker. So those motivations are different. But in, in this version, the monster is much more childlike, is, is more afraid than vengeful. We don't get to see what happens. We hear Elizabeth scream. And when we, when the, everyone rushes into the bedroom, the monster's gone and she's sort of strewn across the bed. And so she doesn't appear to be any more worse for wear, but there uh, some assault of some kind has taken place. So like, I, I was thinking about it, like, sure, maybe this was just like a random house that uh, the, the monster just checked out, just happened to be Frankenstein's house. But I almost feel like there's a, like a connection like he can maybe i i like to think that like he can almost sense they can like sense each other or something like that i don't think it's in the movie at all by any means but i'm just trying to fill in some gaps in my own head as to like oh yeah like why does the creature know where frankenstein lives um also maybe it's just like the biggest house in the town so he was just like drawn there too like that could be that doesn't bug me it doesn't bug me to find out how the little girl's father just like knows frankenstein killed her you know the monster how the right. little girl's father knows she was murdered as opposed to just sort of like fell in the lake kind of stuff you know like these leaps and logic they don't bother me for sure i'm right there with you and then you bring us to the next part where maria's father arrives with her limp body she of course drowned in the water and he claims that she's been murdered and of course in maybe the well it's not the first we established in phantom of the opera that the the mob of people is not unique to this with pitchforks and and torches yep they immediately 
create this like angry mob. I mean, they've been drinking beer all day and even even the Baron makes a joke at some point. They were in the mood for a wedding and now there's a murderer running around. I just got to say that tracking shot of the father holding the daughter again, like it seared into my brain. Like I almost started to cry. The look on his face and the way that she's limp talk about naturalistic right like it just feels like he's holding a dead kid like body and as he's walking through town everybody stops playing and looks at him and everything and then he like walks right up to basically the police station (laughs) and he's like grab your pitchforks like get your torches like like what did james wales say to that guy to get that look on his face yeah that's definitely one of the better shots in the film so i've seen this a bunch of times right And, and i love watching the extras in the background as they're like partying and drinking and they all like they all have this moment where they notice what is just walked by yeah man they form that mob so quickly like they're ready for blood and 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 i was gonna say that the the baron makes a comment earlier on the wedding day uh, i think before they all toast to house frankenstein he mentions they've all been drinking beer and we'll probably get into you know fights later in the day yeah he's like <laughs> right he's like let's waste the champagne on the maids and stuff right like everybody is getting loaded and celebrating and he's like oh if i could count the number of bottles of beer they've been drinking today but it is it's like an Oktoberfest going on you're right like they're slap dancing they're doing the whole nine <laughs> So, yeah, they're ready to hunt this creature down. Yeah, the only thing worse than an angry mob is a drunken angry mob. Oh, totally. Yeah, so the first of the Frankenstein angry mobs forms in this, because I think there's an angry mob in all of them. That's something I know, like, the Simpsons really picked up on. The town of Springfield just always just resorts to an angry mob, if anything. Yeah, I think there's an angry mob in every Frankenstein movie. It's like this town, they just, they they must have stores where they just sell torches and pitchforks. So they all form a couple different search parties. They form one led by Maria's father, one led by Henry Frankenstein, and one led by their burgomaster. Maria's father, Ludwig, is going to take them into the woods. Henry's going to take them into the mountains. And the burgomaster is going to lead his group by the lake. And of course, all three groups, they separate, and then they all come back together up in the mountains where Frankenstein, himself encounters his monster. Now, this might be my favorite singular shot of the whole movie. I know it was printed onto a lobby card in color. To me, that this is like what this movie has been building towards. We talked last episode about Van Helsing versus Dracula, you know, the scenes they shared together and the intensity that was between them. When Frankenstein meets his monster up in the hills, there's like a moment where they don't say anything. I mean, they don't they don't really they don't communicate. The monster can't speak. But like there's this moment where they just kind of stand there and acknowledge one another. Henry's got his torch, the monster's just standing there, and then they go for each other, you know, like, and it becomes a battle at that point. It's a showdown. Yes. It's like a Western almost. Like, they're looking at each other. They're kind of taking a moment. They're paced apart, like, ten spaces even. And they're just waiting on the other one to make a move. It's so yeah. great. Here he is on top of the world, right? Like a god uh, with his creation. So it's it's like a very religious... I get a very sort of religious imagery from that shot that you're talking about specifically where it's like creator creation on top of the world you just see like the clouds and everything and it's just them together even he's even holding the fire as if like i stole the fire from the gods kind of thing it's like such a great shot i love 
what happens next where the monster carries Frankenstein, manages to subdue him and carries him up to this windmill. Now, one thing I didn't know about this film is that Boris Karloff did not use a stunt double for this film or for Bride of Frankenstein. Oh yeah, I knew we were going to get the stunts eventually. Yes. So when we get to this sequence where the monster is carrying the limp body of Henry Frankenstein up to this windmill and then up the stairs, up to the top of this thing, that's all Karloff. Karloff had to like carry the weight of Colin Clive up the hill, up into that windmill, and supposedly suffered from back problems for the rest of his life because of that. Yeah, he had to do it in makeup, in those clunky boots, with that extra padding, and it's not like they even had Colin Clive on like a wench or anything to pull him or a rope, you know, like it was all dead weight. Oh yeah, and they couldn't green screen out any cables or anything, you know, they had to do it all for real. I was surprised they didn't have a stunt double. I know, because like all the makeup and stuff you could so easily hide it and and like we're even going to get a double for colin clive in the in the epilogue you know out of focus yeah it's weird colin clive gets two stunt doubles if you include the dummy that gets thrown onto the windmill <laughs> well i'm glad you brought this up because i wanted to you know every every episode i want to get to stunts at some point and you know we had the carriage in phantom we had the the fall from from the very high stairwell in dracula and here we get a lot like we even had the little girl falling into the lake was a stunt sure this like a guy carrying another guy shot after shot like that's a stunt for sure and all this fucking fire at the end man all this fire at the end like i'm so worried for everybody on set with <laughs> all this fire dude it is insane how did they do that i love this whole sequence and you're, and you're right. There's a lot going on and it, a lot of it seems really dangerous. I mean, of, of course, when Frankenstein is thrown off the windmill and he lands on one of the blades of the windmill, you know, he you can tell that it's a, a dummy. But like, I don't know how they, they managed to do all the stuff with the fire. Like to, to do it with Karloff and not a stunt double is exceptional. The dummy's a little unfortunate only because Frankenstein's supposed to survive. Like if, you know, if he died like he was supposed to, that would have been a glorious death for him uh, just so awkward and painful looking to be sort of clipped by a windmill that way from what I understand is they kind of knew what they had they they knew that this movie was something else and they wanted to make a sequel so I that's what I thought like it was the idea was to film it the way that they had intended and then at the end to just be like no he's okay like don't worry about it he'll be back <laughs> it feels very much like they wanted to prepare for multiple possibilities you know if this movie was was a hit then they could make a sequel you know like they could have henry frankenstein die in that final sequence but then yeah of course we have the the final scene the the monster is trapped in the burning windmill presumed dead and then henry's been tossed off the windmill also presumed dead we get this epilogue at house frankenstein we see henry it's not actually colin clive as you mentioned it is a, a double who's resting you know he's in bed recovering from his injuries meanwhile his father the baron is having a small light-hearted conversation with the, the the maids of the home and like that's how it ends i think it's a great ending part of me just wished it ended with the burning windmill thing but i have to just think back to the way this movie's been balanced right mm -hmm. and it's like there's no way they're going out on a downer they're gonna leave them laughing it's like you just saw frankenstein but if you stay to the end you're gonna have a smile on your face because the baron's gonna tell one last joke all the maids are gonna giggle and we're gonna go out on like a swell of fanfare it was a terrible ordeal we all just went through but everyone's okay we'll be back you know <laughs> like, 
it's it's kind of brilliant in a marketing way where they had their cake and ate it too where it's like all right we made our movie but like let's just add this little tag you know just to sort of cover our bases yeah and i don't know if the bride of frankenstein was immediately thought of that if the plan when this came out was to immediately jump into that or if they decided to do that after it after it came out and became a huge hit like i'm excited to to discover that when we get to bride but this thing was a monster hit it just became a phenomenon. It's insane. It opened in New York in December 1931 and grossed $53,000 in one week. I, I, I looked it up, or at least what this, this website is telling me. According to this website that calculates inflation, $53,000, which is what Frankenstein made in its first week, would be roughly $907,000 today. So imagine a movie making over $900,000 in a single week. That's pretty, that, I mean, that's huge. Frankenstein just like destroyed the box office when it came out. And uh, of course, would go on to spawn multiple sequels, which we will get to. But yeah, I think it's going to wrap us up for this episode. I'm very excited that James Wales comes back to direct The Bride of Frankenstein. I don't know that we get many repeat directors in the Universal Monster movies that we're doing, but well, we'll see when we get there, but it seems to be like we have this winning formula, like let's not screw it up, like let's get the whole team back together and like try and, and duplicate the magic. Or, and from what I remember, um, I mentioned again in that sort of preview episode we did, Bride of Frankenstein before going back into these it ha- was my favorite, so I'm very very much looking forward to getting there. Yeah, it seems very much in these early films. Maybe it only seems like that today, and maybe it wasn't so much the case then. James Whale had only made a, a couple of films before this, but it almost feels like they're hiring auteurs for these early films. You know, like, again, I don't know that that was necessarily the thinking at the time, but today we look at Todd Browning, we look at James Whale, we look at Carl Freund, who uh, directed The Mummy. You know, James Whale comes back again for The Invisible Man and for The Bride of Frankenstein. Like, we think of them as auteurs now and that they had distinct styles and whatnot but maybe it wasn't then but yeah certain certainly it feels like that once they got through these first couple movies universal figured out what the formula was the lemleys were were ousted from the studio and then they just started cranking out these sort of bc level creature features which you know we'll we'll get into all that when we get to them but yeah that, i think that's what i love so much about this like early handful of movies because they're like they're made by guys who had legitimate talent whether that was by accident or by design it's true today yeah i will subscribe to that all tour theory i mean even because if you look at Dracula and Frankenstein, Todd Browning and James Wales have very different styles, you know, like um, we were sort of mentioning earlier, like Browning is way more sort of naturalistic and and Wales seems to be, um, you know, much more expressionistic. And I'm sure they could each do both or whatever, but I love how it's sort of uh, calculable. Like you could tell, like you could see their styles come through in these projects and stuff. And I think that does make it part of like the auteur system. And I think that's, yeah, that's a very, that's a good label. Before we go, one thing I did learn about this film that having to do with Kenneth Strickfadden is that, you know, so he designed the whole lab and actually like operated a lot of the, uh, you know, electronics for that scene. The thing I learned about Kenneth Strickfadden is that Mel Brooks hired him also to operate the exact same lab machines for Young Frankenstein. 
Excellent. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Next time you're watching Young Frankenstein, you can know that it's the, the same guy who's flipping all those switches and making all that stuff come to life. I hope this show lasts long enough that we could do like a comedy run where we do that and like Dracula dead and loving it and we find like whatever the funny Wolfman movie was. <laughs> I guess Teen Wolf. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, so I just wanted to, to mention that because I feel like anybody listening to this is probably a huge fan of Young Frankenstein and would appreciate knowing that. I love that. And Young Frankenstein, and like now that I've just rewatched regular Frankenstein, that feels like such a more of like a companion piece to this, you know? Like, <laughs> even though it's a comedy, like, it just feels like it was made around the same time with the same kind of sensibilities. I love it so much. Yeah, me too. Okay, I think that's about it. I think we got just about everything we need. And with that, it's time for us to head back to our lab. We'll return on Friday, January 29th to ring in the new year with Karloff the Uncanny in Universal's 1932 production of The Mummy. Nice. It's a film that I have often gone to bat for. I, th I feel like most people don't like it as much. I'm not very familiar with I've seen The Mummy maybe two or three times, but it's definitely been a good decade since the last watch. I think most of the um, images of like Universal Mummies are uh, Lon Chaney Jr. He did, I think three or four of them so like the karloff mummy is i think underappreciated in my opinion i think it's pretty great i can't wait to go on an archaeological dig that reflects the news of the day that's right wasn't the mummy sort of ripped from the headlines <laughs> yes it was the first film in the universal monsters series that was not based on a book or a, you know a story of any other kind they, they sort of it took advantage of the um, popularity of king tut's tomb being discovered the egyptian stuff was very popular at the time so they just decided okay that's it that's what we're doing it's like it's been buried for a century it must be supernatural of course yep <laughs> so yeah we'll talk all about that next month in the meantime you can follow us on twitter at monster made pod on instagram and facebook at the monsters that made us and you can email us at the monsters that made us at gmail.com you can follow me on twitter at dan cologne mike where can listeners find you you can find me at the underscore mikester on twitter um and then all the other shows that i'm on at cageclub.me facebook.com slash cageclub and at cageclubpod on twitter dan you want to mention our monster swag that we got for sale yes there are two ways that you can support the show if you would like to do so the first is you can become a patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us the swag mike was talking about we have t-shirts find the link for our t public store on the aforementioned twitter and instagram bios for all other things cage club related just head on over to cageclub.me that's cageclub.me and before we go we want to wish you all a happy new year stay spooky everybody and we'll see you again in 2021 Grrrr! <sighs>